Uh, good morning. My name is Cody. I am one of the pastors here at Pillar Church of Woodlawn. Uh, welcome this morning to those who are admitted to and those who are new. Uh, we're glad that you're here. We're going to be in Ephesians 1 this morning. Uh, Ephesians 1, particularly verses 15 through 19, continuing in our series through Ephesians, God's riches for God's people. God's riches for God's people in Ephesians 1 this morning. Before I, I read Ephesians 1, I was uh, just meditating on Psalm 19 this morning, and I just wanted to read a section out of that, uh, not particularly related to the sermon, um, but I just found it powerful for myself, and I, and I thought it would be helpful for us to read this morning uh, before we dive into our text. Psalm 19, verse 7, it reads, the instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. And the ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. They are more desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold, and sweeter than honey, dripping from a honeycomb. In addition, your servant is warned by them, and in keeping them, there is an abundant reward. And now Ephesians 1, starting in verse 15, we'll go through verse 19. It reads, This is why, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus... In your love for all the saints, I never stop giving thanks for you, as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the mighty working of his strength. Lord, we are grateful today that we have your word. Lord, that it is rich, it is deep. Lord, it is sweeter than honey, more precious than gold. So Lord, we, we pray as we... Read your text, Lord, as we hear from you, Lord, would you help us to turn back and worship to you. Change us through your word, Lord. We need to be changed by it. There's a supernatural working that happens as we read your word and dive into the treasures that are within it. Lord, as you continue to change us so that we can reflect your goodness, Lord, and bring a sweeter worship back to you, Lord, and shine your light out further into the world. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. 1996 was a great year for movies. Uh, the year saw the premieres of the following. Jerry Maguire, Jingle All the Way, Matilda, The Great Independence Day, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, the first Mission Impossible, great movie. 
Twister and Happy Gilmore. But the best movie of the year, without a doubt, without a doubt, released in November featuring a certain world-renowned NBA star, and that is Space Jam. Space Jam. Anyone here ever seen the original Space Jam? Not the one with LeBron, the one with Michael. All right. Uh, if you haven't, it's a pretty absurd movie. Uh, essentially, aliens on another planet decide that their, that their theme park on their planet needs a new attraction. Uh, they make their way to Earth where they decide that they're going to kidnap the Looney Tunes characters and make them their new attraction. Now, in a moment of utter brilliance, Bugs Bunny decides that he is going to challenge these aliens to a game of basketball. And if the aliens win, then Looney Tunes becomes the new amusement at this amusement park. But if the, uh, uh, if the Looney Tunes win, then the aliens go back home and leave the Looney Tunes alone. Now, these aliens are small, they're fat, they're out of shape, no match at all for the ever-bouncing Bugs Bunny and company. Now, the problem is, the real twist in the movie is that the aliens find a magic way to take the skill of the top five NBA players in the world. And in doing so, they transform into these giants who have incredible power and skill. Now, eventually, the Looney Tunes characters kidnap Michael Jordan and have him join the team, and he saves the day, wins the game for them, and sends the aliens packing. Now, why do I bring up one of the greatest movies of all time? Well, I want us to think about this. The aliens, when they were under their own power, were no match for bugs and friends. They're small, nasty, uncoordinated, out of shape. But the moment that they were able to harness the power of NBA players like Charles Barkley and Larry Bird, they became a formidable foe. They needed to take on this outside power for themselves. It needed to go within them. And I would argue that's what we will see today in today's text. Paul is moving from a beautiful paragraph about the beauty and the power of God in our salvation and now moves to prayer. And we'll see that the content of his prayer is that Christians will be able to experience the power of God for themselves as God offers it. And so our main idea this morning our main idea is that believers are given the privilege to participate in God's work by praying for other Christians. I'll say that again. Believers are given the privilege to participate in God's work by praying for other Christians. The title for today is We Are Rich in Prayer. Rich in Prayer. And so first... We'll see, we'll see three different prayers today. First, we'll see that Paul prays in thanksgiving. He prays in thanksgiving in verse 15. This is why he says, I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. He's thankful for their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for the saints. That is, he's, he's thankful for how their belief in Jesus is affecting the way they live. Remember, they are in the midst of a city that is dominated by a pagan religion, worship of Artemis, and by worship of the emperor. And yet the church in Ephesus is holding fast to what they believe, and they're living that faith out. Their faith is having 
uh, is having real effect on their lives. And then it says that he's thankful, Paul is thankful for their love for the saints. That is how, how they commune with one another. How they encourage one another, how they gather together, how they serve one another, how they take care of each other's needs, how they lay down their lives for each other. And it turns out these, these two qualities are something that Paul prizes. If you take a look at the other epistles that Paul wrote, you'll, you'll see this same theme run throughout them. He says in Colossians 1, almost verbatim to this passage, that he's thankful for their faith in Jesus and their love for the saints. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul prays and thinks for the Thessalonian church's work produced by faith, labor, motivated by love, and as endurance inspired in hope. In 2 Thessalonians, he prays the same thing. It's a common theme in much of Paul's epistles. But he's not just assuming that they have faith and love. He's not praying generically, I think you have faith, I think you have love, I'm praying for that. It actually says that he's, he's heard about it. Remember, he is in prison in Rome. And he is hearing about the fate of Christians in this city in Asia. Now, Christianity in Ephesus had real-world implications, right? It was not just lived out in the stillness of a morning quiet time at the kitchen table or confined to a Sunday morning gathering. Instead, their Christian fate was set in the reality of their day-to-day life. They saw Paul apparently hearing the tangible displays of their faith and their love for one another. And Paul's first response is to thank God for their love and for their faith. And I, as I was reading this, I couldn't help but be struck by, even in our services, we do the same. This church takes time to celebrate and praise God for the work that church planters and churches are doing all across the world. We see people's faith in action as they move to a new city, as they build new relationships. Uh, they might risk their financial well-being. They work on building new relationships, and they seek to start a new church. We thank God for the love that we see from afar as they gather together to encourage each other and as they love on their various communities. And I'm sure that each of you do it as you pray individually. You thank God for the various people in your lives that you see living faithfully or that display God's love to you and to others. You thank God for the heroes of your own faith. I'm sure that gratitude is a part of your daily prayers. But I'm going to be a little honest. It can feel a little flat when we sit down to thank God for various things. That's not to say that we're not grateful, but it can feel like we're running through a little bit of a laundry list as we thank God for the things we're grateful for. For instance, we might, like we did this morning, pray, Lord, thank you for the faith and love that Pillar Dumfries is displaying as they send out three different church planters. Thank you for the faith and love that Pillar Stafford is living out as they reach PBS students at Quantico. Thank you for the faith and love that La Gran Comision, which meets here on Sunday nights, is showing in reaching Hispanic people in our neighborhoods. Thank you for the love and faith that Pillar DC is showing to the barracks at 8th and I. Thank you for the love, faith and love of Jonathan Baggett as we sent him out to plant Pillar Church of Fayetteville. And it can just feel like we're running just through a list over and over feels a little flat. We're thanking God for people, but it doesn't seem to be much depth. In fact, as I, I felt this while I was preparing for this sermon, I was kind of tempted, in all honesty, to skip over this section, uh, briefly hit at it, 
and then uh, move on because I thought that it was kind of either self-explanatory and simple at best or shallow at worst. But there's three words in this verse that change everything when it comes to praying and thanksgiving and gratitude to God. It gives it depth and life and meaning and fullness. And those three words are, this is why. Or maybe in your translation it might say, for this reason. The very beginning of verse 15. What's the purpose of saying this is why or for this reason? How does that change the passage? Well, it takes us from, it takes this from a simple giving of thanks, a laundry list of giving thanks for the love and faith of other Christians to a celebration of the gospel at work in and through others. What Paul is saying is that the only reason that the Christians at Ephesus can be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ and can love other saints is because of what was secured for us in salvation. Paul didn't start with a doxology or a praise to God randomly. Instead, it was the only proper response to hearing of the good work that other Christians are accomplishing. As Paul hears about the faith of the church at Ephesus, he can only turn to reflect on how the Father initiated the blessings that are now ours, and then he chose us to be his children. As Paul hears of their faith, he turns to praise Christ for, for freeing them in the first place. And for pouring out himself as he revealed the plan of God for all of time and all of creation. He hears of their faith and reflects on the inheritance which gives endurance to the saints. And as he hears of their love, he reflects of the love that the Father first gave us, which Christ secured for us, and which the Spirit reminds us of as he indwells the believer and leaves his mark on us, as Gary talked about last week. Giving thanks for the faith and love of others is not merely a laundry list when it's attached to the celebration of what God has done. It's a praise of the work that each member of the Trinity plays in our lives. It is only through what was accomplished in the death and resurrection of Christ that we're able to have faith and love in the first place. Without the, the power and love of God working in us, we are the ugly little monsters in Space Jam. We're nasty creatures, only focused on ourselves and what we can gain. But when the power of God comes into our lives, his love and grace transform us to have faith in him and love for each other. And so now as, as we pray for other churches, we get to celebrate in the work that God is doing. As we pray for Pillar Dumfries, we are celebrating the fact that God is raising up and forming new leaders to go and start new churches. As we pray for Pillar Stafford, we celebrate that it is the love of God himself that is coursing through the veins of those reaching students at TBS at Quantico. As we pray for La Grande Commission, we get to celebrate the love that God has for all people from all nations. You see how this gives life and depth to prayers of thanksgiving. We get to participate in the work that God does in others by simply celebrating him and thanking him for what he is doing. And so as we pray in Thanksgiving, as we see Paul continue to pray as he uh, thanks, thanks God for the Ephesians, as he remembers them, he's not just doing it separated from the work that God does, but it's wholly intertwined 
with what God has done for us and is continuing to do for us through the power of the gospel in our lives. So first, we see that we're supposed to pray in thanksgiving for the love and faith of our fellow Christians. Second, we are to pray for the work of the Spirit in the lives of other Christians. Pray for the work of the Spirit. Now, I, I don't know what translations you guys have. Uh, I've, I've got TSB up here. Um, but you'll see that uh, different translation, translations translate this next verse, verse 17, in two different ways. Uh, first, in, in my translation, it reads that Paul is praying for God to give the Holy Spirit to the believers. Right? It says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the capital S Spirit, of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. That's what mine says. On the other side of that, some translations translate it by saying that Paul is praying for God to give us a general spirit of wisdom and revelation. Basically, help us to be wise and to see what God has revealed. And now, at the core of it, I, I don't know if it really makes a big difference because the spirit himself is the one who imparts revelation wisdom and revelation to our spirits. Um, so even if it was referring to our spirits, the wisdom and revelation is still coming from the Holy Spirit. That being said, I, however, I, I believe the correct interpretation of the text is that the spirit mentioned here is the Holy Spirit. Uh, it seems to be the best translation. That's because he's referred to as the spirit of wisdom, which he's referred to in other passages as, such as in Isaiah 11. So with that being said, just, just to give you guys a little bit of background on that, uh, what is Paul praying for? Well, he's praying that the Father, who, remember, is the initiator of all things that we read about at the beginning of chapter 1. He's praying that the Father would give, would have the Spirit give himself more and more to the believers by imparting wisdom and revelation. Now, what, what are wisdom? What's, what's wisdom? What's revelation? Well, first, according to dictionary.com, wisdom involves a healthy dose of perspective and the ability to make sound ju judgments about a subject. So wisdom involves a healthy dose of perspective and the ability to make sound judgments about a subject. Wisdom differs from knowledge in that it's not just knowing information about a subject, it's using that knowledge to inform how you think, how you act, how you speak, how you relate, and how you live. And the thing to recognize here is that the wisdom that Paul prays for is rooted in the knowledge of him, as we see at the end of verse 17. It would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And this matters, because if we are to understand wisdom, we must recognize that godly wisdom and worldly wisdom differ in many ways. Let's go back to the definition of wisdom. It involves a, first, a healthy dose of perspective, and second, the ability to make sound judgments about a subject. Now think about perspective. Because of what God has told us, we know that life is eternal. We won't just live in this life and then cease to exist. Instead, when we die, we will move on to the next life, where we will, where we will spend either all of eternity separated from God or with him. And we know that the physical is not all that there is in this life. In fact, Paul will go on in this same letter in Ephesians. He'll go on to say that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, 
against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. That's perspective on the reality of life. It's eternal and it's spiritual. And then we get further perspective on what God cares about as we read his word. We read stories of God calling people to show faithfulness to him, such as the story of God asking Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. We see that God values the poor, the rejected, the low of society. God values giving up all that we are to serve him. God values that we love him and love others and that we pour ourselves out to love him and love others. And then, as we see the reality of life and as we learn God's perspective, we begin to make actionable judgments and decisions in our life. We begin to apply what we learn. And this is where it really differentiates from what the world says. Think about it. God values faithfulness. This may mean that you give up your current job and go become a missionary overseas. It may mean that you turn down a promotion at work, even as you look at that giant raise, because you prioritize committing to serving your family and your church. As a church, sound judgment may look like seeing people leave during PCS season and taking actionable steps towards continuing to pour ourselves out to the community instead of going into self-preservation mode. That doesn't make sense in worldly financial wisdom. And this is what Paul is praying for the church at Ephesus and what we ought to pray for each other. It is so easy to hear the word wisdom and immediately begin to align our thinking with what the world deems wise. And that's not to say that saving your money is bad or working your current job isn't enough. I'm not saying that at all. Just go read Proverbs. You'll see working a job and saving a money are wise things. But what we need is for the Spirit to come into our lives and tell us uniquely what wisdom looks like for us. We need to pray that our fellow believers aren't confused between godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. Again, just like the Monstars could only gain the ability to play basketball by taking the power of basketball players, we can only have proper godly wisdom from receiving wisdom that the Spirit, God himself, gives us. And not only does Paul pray that the Spirit imparts wisdom to the Christians in Ephesus, but he also prays that the Spirit gives revelation to the Christians in Ephesus. Now, the Greek word behind revelation means two things. First, it means a disclosure of truth. A disclosure of truth. Second, it also means to lay naked or bare. I think that both definitions are intertwined here. Because God is a God of truth. And so to give us truth is to expose us to more and more of himself. So Paul is praying that the Spirit would help the Christians in Ephesus to know God more, to know him more deeply, and to know truth as a result. And anyone who has been in Christianity for any length of time knows that we need to pray this for one another. There's so much distortion of truth and confusion of what's true or what's not, even within Christianity. Turn on TBN, and you'll hear preachers saying that God wants you to be rich. Then you read a book like Radical, and you read that you should sell everything and move overseas. Hop on Facebook, and you'll see one side saying that we should affirm homosexuality, and then you see another side spewing utter hate towards the LGBTQ community. Some people say that 
Christians should be serving the poor, that we should be primarily focused on that, while others say that we should focus exclusively on evangelism. You see that even within Christianity, there is division over what is right and what is wrong. So we need to pray that God reveals the truth to each of us and reveals it, reveals himself to us. We need God to come in and show us what's true and show us how we should act with that revelation and wisdom. Now, we shouldn't just leave it there, just talking about wisdom and revelation, because there's another truth about prayer that we see here. There's something even deeper than just understanding that we should pray for wisdom and revelation. That is, Paul is telling us, simply if you look, that he is praying for God to act. And not only that, he prays for the Father to have the Spirit continue to give himself to other believers. I want you to think about that for a moment. Uh, I, I, I have no problem going and asking someone, maybe I do have a little bit of a problem with it, but I can go and ask someone for help. Uh, I, I'm fine with going and asking someone directly, hey, can you help me do this? I, I, I have even less of a problem of, hey, can you help so-and-so do this? Right? I'm asking directly, can you do this action? I don't, I don't have a problem with that. Where I begin to, to feel a little uncomfortable, though, is when I have someone ask someone else to do something. That's where it starts to feel, at least for me, I don't know about you guys, but at least for me, that starts to feel a little uncomfortable. It, it requires something different. It's a bold ask, and it's the only type of ask that is made when you have a certain level of, of power or authority. And that's just that. What Paul is doing here is showing us that God... And prayer has given us the ability to participate in the work that he does in and through other believers. You see, Christians understand that the Holy Spirit proceeds forth from the Father. Both are fully God, but the Spirit works at the Father's bidding. And now Paul is telling us here, we get to participate in that action. We don't just wait for God to move. We don't sit around and, and hope that he moves. Instead, we ask that the Father, God the Father, send God the Spirit to other believers. That he would give himself more and more to other believers. As Hebrews 4 tells us, God has given us the ability to step into his throne room and talk to him. We can make real requests with real actionable consequences. We can ask the Father to send the Spirit. We can ask God the Father to send God the Spirit both who are infinitely more powerful than us, to other believers. Prayer is power. And so we don't, we don't just pray for wisdom and truth. Instead, God gives us the privilege to call him into action as he ministers to fellow believers by giving himself to them and them gaining wisdom and revelation as a result. So not only is prayer a means of celebration of all that God has done, but it gives us the power to ask God to impart wisdom and truth to other believers as they need it. Now, God sees fit to answer as he wants to. Ultimately, the power is up to him, but he invites us to participate in that action with him. Again, just like the aliens needed the power of the player, so we ask the Father to have his spirit give more and more of himself to us. And so we we pray in thanksgiving as a means of celebration. We pray for the Father to 
have the Spirit give more and more of himself to us that we may, ha- that we may be wise and that we may know truth. And finally, we see that Paul prays for the Ephesians and what we should be praying for each other is to pray for enlightenment. Pray for the enlightenment of other believers. Verse 18 starts with, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know. And then he goes on to say three things. But before we get to those, we should ask, what does it mean for the eyes of our heart to be enlightened? Well, typically, when we think about enlightenment in the Christian faith, we refer to that moment when God's beauty shines through in that first moment of salvation. When we come to realize that the gospel is true, we place our faith in Jesus Christ. But Paul here is talking to Christians. Remember, he said that he is uh, that he's heard about their faith and their love. So that can't that can't be what he's getting at. They're already Christians. Instead, Paul is getting at the experience of the believer. In, in, in normal life, there's objective truth that has no real impact on your life. Uh, for instance, I found out this morning that Australia apparently is wider than the moon. Who knew? It's an objective fact, but that has no real impact on your life. The truths of Scripture differ from that. We don't just simply adhere to a list of objective truths. Instead, those truths should come into our life like a radiating light, giving us life, changing us, shaping us, and continuing to prove God's love to us. And that's Paul's prayer here. He doesn't want us to just intellectually assent to grace being true, but he wants us to experience the power of grace. He wants us to truly experience the truths of Christianity for ourselves. It's not fueled by right knowledge. You can't really be changed if you don't know what God has said in his word, what the truths of Christianity are. But it shouldn't just stop there. Paul wants us to be enlightened. His prayer is that the Ephesians and what we should be praying for each other is that we experience the fullness of what it means to follow Jesus. His concern is that we experience subjectively what we know to be true objectively. Again, his concern is that we experience subjectively what we know to be true objectively. It's like when I say that I'm a fan of the Washington, Washington Commanders. I could say that I'm a fan because I keep up with their wins and losses and stats and players. But until I feel the agonizing pain of defeat after defeat, which I know well, and that small fleeting sense of joy when they win a game every once in a while, I can't truly say that I'm a real fan of the Commanders. So again, Paul wants us to get into the experience of all that God gives us. He wants our hearts to be enlightened by this. And so what does Paul want the believers to know experientially? Well, first, he wants us to to know and to experience what is the hope of God's calling, hope. Now, hope is a powerful thing. Hope is at the precipice of many major world changes. Sure, frustration is uh, typically at the uh, frustration at the current situation is a major benefactor. But action in changing the world is only taken when there is hope that the situation can be better and that the world can be better. Nations have been birthed. Movements have been formed. Kingships have been toppled. 
businesses have boomed all out of the tiny hope that something can be different. Hope is powerful. But there's something that separates our hope from every other hope that's out there. You see, Christians have the hope that Christ will one day return to his people. We yearn for the day when there will be no more pain, crying, or suffering. We long for when God's glory will radiate throughout the earth in such a way that there will be no need for the sun. But we're different in that this hope is not just a blind hope. It's not a shot in the dark. It's hard to hope when you don't really know what's going to happen. I mean, just think about uh, MLK, right? He, He had a dream. He had hopes. But in that moment, he really, he didn't have the security of past events securing future hope. There was no equal justice before. America only knew slavery, then Jim Crow and unequal rights. So when he hoped, he didn't really have a, a solid foundation from the past from which to jump. Only the objective moral truth and knowing right from wrong. But the way that we differ is that Christians know that their hope is secured because of what Christ has already done and accomplished. Because Christ has already died and come back to life. Because he ascended back to heaven and is now seated in the throne room of God. We have a solid foundation from which to hope. Our hope is not blind, but it's founded in past events of the future promise. Christ has defeated death once before, and he will defeat its power over us. And our prayer for each other is that we should be able to experience that hope. When it seems like the world is going down, whether it's looming threats from other countries, inflation, not knowing what is true or or who to trust, when the world is going into an anxious frenzy, we should be praying that others can walk confidently, knowing, fully experiencing the hope that comes from Christ's resurrection. We ought to pray that when it seems like everything else is crashing down around us, that the hope of our fellow believers is growing stronger by the day as Christ's resurrection shows, proves to us, that he will one day return. So we're, we're to pray that other believers experience hope. Second, Paul's prayer is that the believers in Ephesus would experience, see, know the wealth of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. In this, he's, he's not just referring to all that we will receive in the future, which is also incomprehensible, as Gary talked about last week. He's also talking about the inheritance that we have now in Christ in this life. The Bible is clear. Now, we are rotten and sinful. However, when we emphasize just that and only that, that we are rotten and sinful, we can miss this. We can miss this. And again, those truths are true. If you don't think you're sinful, ask the person closest to you. I'm sure they've got a running list in their mind. But when God saves us, he utterly redeems us. Now we're not just rotten, sinful people left on our own, but we are able to experience the fullness of God's goodness to us in this life. We can experience the fruits of the Spirit, as Galatians 5 tells us. We can see God's beauty flourishing in the world. And as we read Scripture, we can commune with God through prayer, getting to sit in His presence and enjoy Him. And we have each other. 
God has given each of us to the other, that we can encourage each other to, to press on, that we may help each other see an aspect of God's beauty that the other may miss. All that God has is now ours in Christ. And the wealth of riches uh, that we have reminds me of the scene from Harry Potter when he walks into Gringotts Bank. Uh, he's told that there's a vault that's waiting for him. And he hops on the trolley ride to go down into the utter, utter depths of the bank and walks up to a vault that he's being told is his. Then as he opens the vault, gold meets him immediately. It's filled to the ceiling as he sees that he is the inheritor of riches that his parents saved for him that he had no idea about. And for us to only focus on how rotten and sinful we are is to walk into that vault and reject everything that is in it. Our loving Father is giving to us, giving us riches beyond measure, is giving us a chance to change, a chance to be redeemed and restored. And when we say that we can't have it, we're rejecting God himself. Instead, we ought to pray that each of us experience the joy that comes from restoration and renewal, which will only come from the mighty work of God. And so Paul is praying that we would know fully, that we would know, have a knowledge of, and experience hope, the wealth of riches that God gives us, and finally, power. Power. There's actually four words in this final, in this final verse uh, that in the Greek have their root in the word for power. Those words are power, obviously, mighty, working, and strength. Paul isn't playing around or trying to like hint at it. He's being upfront. He wants the believer to understand and experience the power that God has for us. Know this today. The creator of the universe, who holds all things into his hands, who spoke the world into creation, didn't form it with his hands, spoke the world into creation, who sent plagues on Egypt, who provided for Israel in the wilderness, who stopped the sun during battle, who preserved Israel through trial after trial, through being conquered over and over again, and who defeated death is on your side. He holds infinite power of which we can only scratch the depths. And this changes how we live. We're not merely feeble creatures unable to do anything in this life. It really is a moment where the aliens become the monster. When the aliens take the power of the NBA players, there's this scene, there's this moment where they swell from these small, ugly creatures to these tall, powerful giants rippling with muscle and power. And that's what happens to us. We, we walk with God. Do you guys get that? We walk with God. God is at work within us using his power for our good. We don't need to fear anything because God is on our side. And be encouraged by this today. If you are God's, if you have placed your faith in the true message of the gospel, trusting in Christ and all that he said and did, then you have power. You have wealth. You have hope. My prayer today, just like Paul prayed, is that you experience the fullness of hope, wealth, and power that are now yours. And if you're not a Christian, I encourage you today to think about these truths. Dwell on these truths. Jesus Christ wasn't just a normal human being who died an ordinary death. 
when he died that we might be freed from sin and rose again that we might one day come back to life as well and experience life with God in his full direct presence. Christianity offers you hope and confidence as you live this life. Christianity offers you wealth, abundance, satisfaction, and a family. Not only that, but we are given, Christians are given the, partici- the ability to participate in the work of God. No other religion in the world offers the restoration that Christianity offers you. God holds his hand out to you now, offering to redeem you and restore you to what he created you to believe. He just asks that you believe the events around Jesus, that Jesus was God, believe those to be true, and that you would trust him with your life. And as we close, I encourage you to remember, Christians in this room, I encourage you to remember that praying for each other matters. Prayer is a privilege given to us. We are given participation in the work of God by celebrating all that he has done, by asking the Father to have the Spirit give more and more of himself to others, and asking him to help us to truly know, rightly, to truly know and to experience the abundance of hope, riches, and power that he gives to us in Christ. Continue to pray for each other that we might continue to thrive and our love for God, and our faith in Christ, and in our love for all the saints. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who gives so abundantly. Lord, as we, as we read this morning, or as we, as we read in Ephesians 1, that you're, you just continue to give more and more of yourself. As we pray in thanksgiving, we understand that Uh, We only have things to be thankful for because you have given yourself to us. You've secured salvation for us. Lord, Father, you you continue to give us the Spirit more and more, that we may know wisdom, that we may know truth. Lord, and you've given us hope. You've given us inheritance. Lord, you've given us power. So we ask, Lord, that you would help us to trust you, Lord, we pray these things. We thank you for the work that you've done. We thank you for uh, continuing to give the Spirit more and more to us. We ask for that all the more that we may know what is wise and true. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to know truly, to have a right understanding of hope, inheritance, and power, and that we'd be able to experience those as we live our lives. Lord, we love you. We praise you, and we ask these things in your son's name. Amen.